Hello, welcome to the Nick Luck Daily podcast and the first in a brand new series, Nick Luck Daily USA. During the next 12 months, I'll be talking to those who lead and also to those who aspire to lead as the American horse racing industry engages in the most critical battle of ideas in its long and illustrious history. Who is best placed to steer this ship through the choppy waters? Who has the vision? Who has the skill, the integrity, the wherewithal to keep horse racing relevant or even to make us care? So my first guest, and I've chosen a good one, is by his own admission, a disruptor. A self-made billionaire, he grew up in Queens. He's been a racing fan since his teens. And as his business career developed, so did his ownership portfolio. Uh, champion juvenile Uncle Mo was the first superstar, infamously scratched from the derby the day before the race, a fate that was spookily to befall this same owner last year. His hot favourite forte controversially fell foul of veterinary checks at the 11th hour. There have, however, been so many highs courtesy of Breeders' Cup Classic winner Vino Rosso, Belmont won two Mo Donegal and Nest in his own backyard, and he now has champion juvenile-elect fierceness as he bids to lay that Kentucky Derby ghost. But Mike Rapoli is not happy with the horse racing industry. There isn't anything in this sport that is good at the moment, he told me on NBC last fall. I blame myself. In any other sport, the owners take control. Here, we let the racetracks do it for us. And so to that end, he has created and become the self-appointed champion of the horseman, creating the National Thoroughbred Alliance with him as the chair and respected industry figure and punter's advocate Pat Cummings at his side. How do we save horse racing, says Rapoli? This is it. Mike Rapoli, welcome to Nick Luck Daily USA. How are you doing so far in your bid to save this great sport? Hey, Nick, I, I, appreciate, I appreciate the intro. The uh... When you got to Uncle Mo and Forte scratching, that one hurt a little bit, but the rest was uh, was was pretty good. Um, you know, Nick, I'm I, I'm I'm really. I was a little, I've been a little down the last eighteen months on the sport, and uh, I'm rejuvenated. Like I I really have become rejuvenated over the last sixty days. Um, you know, you know, I'm actually engaging in Twitter, which is is fun. Um, and I'm having a good time with that, but I'm really trying to do my own little focus group. Um, and I'm doing it a couple different ways, Nick. Um, I'm talking with people very high level in the industry, whether it's a entity or it's a track or it's a organization in racing or a stallion farm or a, someone that runs a sales company. Um, and I'm also talking to fans. And the way I'm talking to fans is through Twitter. And, you know, I, as many people might know my personality, I'm a little sarcastic. Um, I don't mind. Um, I'm a disruptor. Um, you know, I mean, people either love it or hate it. Um, probably no in between. Or sometimes they love it and hate it at the same time, but that's okay too. Um, but I'm really getting a good feel about, the pulse of what's going on. And, and I guess where I'm rejuvenated is people love this fucking sport. People are fucking passionate about the sport. People want this sport to be here. People want this sport to succeed. People love horses. People love gambling. People love going to the races. And honestly, the discouraging part is we're doing everything we can to screw this up. And, People just keep coming back, and it just shows you how strong the core and the roots of this is. I mean, a gambler, I hear gamblers say, I'm never betting again. 
And then you see them bet the early double mark. You know, like, like I'm never going to buy another horse. And they buy five at the sale. Like, trainers, I can't wait to retire. And then they're going to do it for five more years. Like, it's just amazing the passion that people have. And, you know, how do you just make it better? All right. So we're going to come to that. But you said yourself there, people go straight back in. They lose a bet, they go straight back in. They complain about the industry and they keep getting stuck in. You you are the archetype here. You are the archetype. You're the man who told me there was nothing good about racing. And then I said to you, but you spent $14 million at Keeneland only a week before. So what I need to find out from you is how did horse racing, when you were 11, 12, 13 years old, growing up, how and why did horse racing grab you? You know, you know, I got into it as a 13-year-old fan, like, you know, and just a combination of just watching these magnificent animals run 40 miles an hour down the stretch and and then, you know, the trainers and the jockeys and the and the strategy and it was just and and it just was like, you know, it's like a, you know, I mean, think about how we used to watch TV years ago where people would watch two hour movies and series and now they binge and they go on YouTube or they go on TikTok and like TikTok is like that two minute little video that captures your attention. Um and horse racing it's like all these every race is it's a little TikTok. Like it's a minute 30, it's a minute 10, it's a two two minutes, but you you have this vision for how it's going to play out, and it's, it's it's this beautiful short film. You know, you didn't know the horse was going to br uh, break at this, uh, get not not get it get out of the gate. You didn't know that you know you thought there was three speeds in the race and only one showed up and he went wire to wire. So it's this unbelievable little TikTok that you're watching, which is you know which is less than two minutes that you're just like you have a prediction for it. It's like watching an NFL game or a soccer game instead of two hours and three and a half hours. You get it in two minutes. And, and the buildup to that is so exciting. So horse racing today, for the way sports are marketed, can be the biggest sport out there. People like, you know, short, quick, make a decision. Tell me if I'm a winner or a loser in two minutes. And let me go on to the next one. You know, but like in the United States, like, let's see, when we have six tracks running, five of them race at one o'clock, then they all go off at like 1.30, like, Stagger them, 1 o'clock, 105, 110, 115. Common sense here, guys. So listen, it's 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 a it's a it's a short film. It's a short, it's a TikTok. And 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 it draws our attention. And the great news is you can miss the first eight TikToks and just watch the ninth race. And you can just jump in and leave. You don't have to watch, you know, every series, every moment. There's no, oh, I missed that one. Like you could not watch racing for two race, two two weeks and go to the track and it's a new day and you didn't ha you don't have to be caught up on anything. So the brilliance of how it could play out and how huge it can be if you had a vision and some leadership. Like you don't have to watch series season one, two, or three. You could pick it up on series season four and be fine with it. You're an entrepreneur. You've been a disruptor in business, and it has got you an awful long way. Uh, you have created brands that people would never have thought would have been particularly successful, and you've sold them for billions of dollars to multinational companies. So you clearly have vision in business. When you watch people lead in horse racing, what, in your view, from your experience, are their key deficiencies? What are they doing wrong? Yeah, I, I would say that, that there's three things. The first one is vision. 
someone has to have a long-term vision for the sport. How's this sport going to look two years from now, five years from now, 10 years from now? Long-term vision in horse racing is next month. That's it. Like next month, next start, next sale, next race, next season. That's it. Um, leadership. There isn't any, if I asked you who is the leader of this team, you would give me the head coach. If you said, who is the leader of that company, you would give me the CEO. If I said, who is the leader of the NFL, you would give me Roger Goodell. Who is the leader of horse racing? It's a lot of chiefs. You couldn't, you couldn't even come up with one name. Like, like there is no leader. There is no leader. Nobody knows the head of this person or the head of that person. Nobody knows that. No, there, there isn't one leader. Not only, there's no leadership. If you did a survey, name the leader of horse racing. It's not that you would get many answers because actually many answers is pretty good. You'd get no answers. That's the scariest part. There are no answers. There isn't one leader in the sport. But but here's the thing, Mike. As you know, with the creation of HISA, Horse Racing Integrity and Safety Act, and the authority that followed from that, it was hard enough to get the key states, the key jurisdictions, on the same page from a regulatory point of view. I mean, how on earth could you conceive of getting them on the same page from a governance and administrative point of view? That's almost beyond beyond thinking as far yeah. as i can see nick nick you know how much i like you and how much i i 80 percent of the time i think we agree it's so wrong that opinion because it's the infrastructure we've had for 40 mm. years that has caused us not to be able to get states aligned not be able i mean that the federal government has to come in and police our sport is an incompetence to the vision and leadership of the last 30 40 years it only happened because we've never put it together. My concern now. Oh, I don't. Oh, don't, don't, don't mistake me. I don't disagree with your premise. I'm just trying to work out how you, as someone who aspires to lead, is going to execute it. this. How do you execute this? I actually think now that Heiser is involved, a a a commissioner of racing or an entity that has power has one of the biggest things already checked off. I got all the states to agree because there's one federal mandate. Here are the laws. Mm. Lisa Lazarus, that, HISA, let this let this NTA work alongside HISA, marketing, promotion, sports, work with the tracks, and then, you know, horse and, and, and integrity, safety, HISA. That now that they have this in place, it's actually easier. Um, the problem is, is that not only is there no vision and no leadership, the last one is key. There's no alignment. There's no alignment. So when I, you know, you know, Pat Cummings is like such an incredibly, you know, probably the reason why Pat Cummings doesn't have a bigger job in racing is because he's too smart and his intellect is too high. Um, and like, so just just to clarify, Pat Cummings, who has been on my daily podcast many times, uh, he is a uh, an administrator and a punter's champion of many, many years. He's worked in the US. He then went to work in Hong Kong. He was very well respected there. He came back. He founded the Thoroughbred Idea Foundation uh, in yep. conjunction with Craig Burnick, powerful owner. And now you've kind of subsumed that into your uh, into your entity, the National Thoroughbred Alliance, where he's effectively your your CEO, right? He's 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 a CEO, one hundred percent. And and you know, 
we have a great balance because he's a he's he's not a disruptor. He's a you know he's high IQ. He gets the sport. He gets what gamblers are thinking. He gets what racetracks are thinking. He gets what the racing director is thinking. He gets what Heist is thinking. He knows like he he gets it all. But the point is that there's never been someone that's effectively been able to put all the pieces together because what's happening, Nick, is as I've had these high-level conversations, when you talk to the racetracks, they mm -hmm. want racing fixed except for maybe their track. When you talk to stallion farms, they want it all fixed except for their farm. When you talk to the, the big sales companies, they want it fixed but not the companies yet. They want everything, you know, they want everything fixed except – why don't you go fix the seven out of eight, not this? Pat and I break it down into eight buckets. And it's, listen, the bottom line is everybody's going to have to give up 10 or 20% to get this, then get 80% of what they want to get this sport to go 800%. And selfishly, because that's the only word I can use right now, is, well, I like it, but there's bigger problems. There's bigger problems. And you know, listen, the one big disappointment I've had, and I, I don't mind saying this because I am a disruptor, is you got me putting myself out there and you got people loving it and people that, you know, I might need security next time I go to the track even more than I have already. And I have all these are you, other- Are you not, hang on, are you, are you flattering yourself a little bit there? I mean, you Which like that you about, about, about that people love me now. About, no, about the security. There are plenty of people who enjoy you, enjoy your output, enjoy your company, and there are people who are going to think you're, to put no finer point upon it, a bit of a self-serving ass. But pompous, they call me. I like pompous, but I don't agree with it. But uh, I've got I've got the monopoly on that. Don't worry about that. Yeah, no, no, no. Yeah, well, it's because you have the accent. I don't have the accent. That probably puts you over the top with that. Um, listen, at the end of the day. You know, when you're going to be as vocal as I am and you're going to um, be as passionate as I am, you know, people are going to sway to loving it or not. Um, you know, one thing is I don't. If someone loves me, I applaud them. I appreciate it. If someone doesn't love me or hates me, I applaud them. I appreciate them. And but what I, what I found out. Can I can I just can I stop you there? Just on a point of personality, because I think a lot of people will be interested to know who Mike Rapoli is and what kind of informs how you how you operate. Is that kind of breezy, insouciant, well, I don't really care what people think of me attitude? Does does money buy you that? Does success and money buy you that? Or is it that? apparent self-confidence that has actually propelled you to a position of financial security. What came first? Oh, no, the, 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 the attitude and the mentality came first. I mean, I just bought a sneaker company and apparel company called Noble. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, I bought a majority stake. And one thing that we're going to work on with Noble sneakers is this Noble mentality. I mean, you know, Nick, what percent of people's days right now are full of bullshit? Oh, 80%. Massive. I mean, just just check out what your computer tells you, what your screen time is every week. That'll tell you. I mean, and 90% of that will be bullshit. So it's a combination of knowing that there's 80, 90% of bullshit out there. But the big difference is the mentality on how to deal with that bullshit, how to dismiss that bullshit. People will say, oh, I, I don't really care what people think about me and say, but what did he say? And what did he mean? And how did he say it? So that means you do care. Like, when I was 10, I had this personnel. 
when I was fucking 20, I had this personality. 30. Mike from Queens doesn't go away. You know, I was playing basketball in the schoolyard with 16-year-old kids. We're all 16 years old. And I would tell kids, you know, if you foul me, hey, be careful. You're going to work for me one day. And like, look at this asshole. Not only did he say, don't foul me, don't work for me one day. Like, it's an edge. It's an attitude. But So, so where, where did that come from? Is that is that genetic? You know, it's funny. Listen, um, my dad was a waiter from France. My mom was a seamstress. I wanted all these great things. And my mom, I, I grow, growing up, I thought my mom was cheap. I just didn't realize we didn't have a lot of money. <laughs> you know, I wanted I wanted Nike sneakers and I got pro kids. I wanted, uh, you know, Haagen-Dazs ice cream and I got the store bread. And I got, I wanted rubber wheels on my, uh, on my, uh, on my skates and I got metal wheels and I squeaked all the way down as I'm playing hockey with the only guy with metal wheels. So it was that chip of being told no by my mom motivationally, I don't think she did it on purpose, but I wanted better and bigger. And, you know, I mean, when I was 13 years old, I wanted to own horses, you know, and it's dry. I mean, so much nowadays is mindset, man. People have lost the mindset. They're defeated before it starts and they don't attempt it. You know, one thing I would say about, you know, you're, you're in your 40s, I'm in my 50s is at 20 years old, everything is so public. You make a mistake, everybody knows about it. You know, so you're either afraid to make a mistake or not. What I'm noticing about my little, this is hysterical, about my Twitter engagement. First of all, if you look at my Twitter engagement, I don't even know, but Lindsay uh, Ravich, who, uh, who does um, who does VP of communications for all my companies, like says, Mike, you don't have a lot of followers, but your engagement <laughs> is like, you know, you'll send out a tweet, you get 50,000 people engaged. I'm like, what does that mean? That means people are reading and passing it on, even though they're not following you. What do you call it? You, you would know better than me what that means, right? Yeah. Listen, your engagement is far better than mine, and you've had a you've got about a tenth of the followers. Now, here, here's here's I, I want to drill down into this into this um, Twitter or X engagement that you've been experiencing over the last few weeks because you're clearly getting stuck in and getting stuck in quite deliberately, and you don't mind a confrontation. So, for example, first tweet that comes up here, uh, Missouri cowgirl for it is she, says, sitting on X slash Twitter, requoting people like me really seems like an efficient use of time for a millionaire trying, in inverted commas, to change the industry. How about you buy one of those floundering tracks and show people how it should really be done in your eyes? That would be action. I think that's quite a good question. And you've replied, correction, I'm not a millionaire. I mean, <laughs> I mean it's funny, saying, but Nick, it's I'm funny, but... But but at that point, she's thinking and everyone's thinking, well, hang on a minute. She's got a point. Why don't you put your money where your mouth is and buy a couple of tracks and create the leisure experience that you're espousing rather than just coming up with a funny but well, quite obnoxious well, then, then, and then, So just so you, just so everyone knows, everyone's wondering if I'm sitting there tweeting. I don't even have my password. Okay. Danielle Bricker, who's my uh, assistant racing manager, uh, the poor poor girl deserves a lot more money now because she has to tell me, you know, like she shows me what people say, and then I will I can view it, and then and then I'll tell her to respond, and she has to type this in. So it's kind of hysterical on how I'm doing it. But when when you say that's a valid question, right? I have no idea, but I, I'm going to ask it. How many comments were on that my response? How many likes were on my response, and how much engagement? So do you think that people really want my answer on that? 
Like, I'm just asking you. I mean, can you tell me what it looks like? Well, I mean, you're, but the thing is, are you there as an entertainer or, or are you trying to change the sport or can you be both? Are you trying? What, what I'm asking you is, is this social media uh, mini, mini, the series of little mini storms that you're creating at the moment designed to burnish or or uh, enhance your profile so that therefore you have more pull and more uh, clout within the industry, even more than you already do by spending $14 million in the salary at Keeneland. So Nick, you started by saying, I was a brilliant marketer. I've built brands. I've got them to here. And now you're asking me a question like that. Come on. You know the answer. So there we are. You know, what the it's a combination of, hey, one tweet's going to be very valid. Another tweet's going to be entertaining. You know, one tweet's going to be, hey, what do you guys think here? And listen, I don't take myself so serious. Like, I mean, you have to know that. I mean, I'm always going to be Mike from Queens. I mean, some of the best tweets I, I, I see sometimes is, why does Mike Rapolio always look like he's homeless when he goes to the races? You know, because I'm just a kid from Queens and that's what I want to be. Oh, you're looking, you're looking significantly less homeless today in your... You know, I actually shaved yesterday and it wasn't because I was doing this. I actually thought this was a phone call. So I, I actually shave. It's well, kind of rare, like once a month when I shave and you got me. Yeah, uh, I, I there is a there is a tweet that I want to drill into a little in a little bit more depth because I think it covers off a lot of your own concerns and a lot of the the key uh, battlegrounds in the sport and it's to do with um, a couple of journalists and uh, some administrators in the sport as well. So Ray Paulick, who founded and runs and edits the the Paulick Report, uh, which for, for those who for those who aren't familiar with the with the Paulick Report. Um, Mike, how would you how would you describe it dispassionately? How would you describe it? National Enquirer Racing. <laughs> I mean, I mean, TMT. I would, I I would say uh, it's a a highly respected investigative um, news organ that has had an awful lot of love and devotion. Wait, I'm, uh, I'm sorry, Nick. I, I'm sorry, Nick. I, I misunderstood the question. Were you asking me how I thought you would describe it or how I would describe it? Just oh, so we're, descri know. we're describing it in different ways. But oh, okay, the, no, I'm describing it my yeah. way, the way you Here, asked me. Here's <laughs> the thing. So, so what is your what is your issue with with the Paulick report, which um, quite often tries to highlight a lot of the uh, ills in horse racing, presumably with the same mission that you have to make the sport better in the long term. Yeah, listen, I think that there are very important negative stories that have to be hit head on. But a Baltimore jockey who I have no idea who he is, whether he ever won a race, who was arrested for murder in a small town in Maryland, I don't think needs to be a top five story. Um, I, I don't even think in the local Maryland paper that story is even written. Um, my arm is dangling, you know, uh, like a slow ambulance in that those are the type of stories where are they? Now, listen, at the end of the day, listen, if he's getting clicks on it, that's great. But we have very few journalism, real journalists who write, write about the sport. But, that, but I would argue that that's real journalism. Are you advocating that we're all marketeers for an ailing sport? Um, is that real journalism? Um, yeah, I guess you could say. Anything could be real journalism. What, 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 define real journalism is anything that was written, right? I mean, what would define fake journalism? I well, mean, the, the the story is true. The story is valid. The story has a 
a clear degree of significance if you're talking about uh, a case of homicide within the sport. I think, I think, without wishing to put words in your well, mouth, I, I just want to say, I, I think I fall in a heavy majority opinion. You might be different, Nick, which is perfect. There's, that the Pollock report tends to be more negative. You know, the only time I've ever had Pollock or Joe Drape reach out, hmm. never after a grade one win, never after great success, only when there's some sort of negativity on something. This has been 15 years in the industry. Like, that's it. All right. So like, I think this is this is the point I wanted to get to, which is what I think is that you're concerned that um, journalists who or, or organs that are a bit more investigative, a bit more hard hitting, that try and get down beneath the surface of the sport, where things, let's face it, have been pretty damn grimy over the last few years. You're concerned that their output, such as it is, is shorting the stock of the industry. That's Is that what you don't like? No, I, I think that their part is the only part that we're telling the story. No one's telling the other story. So you like, think there should be there should be more? You think we're no, not doing well enough so, telling the good news? Someone sent me a tweet. The NFL right now gets an average football game, like on Monday night lately, has been in 25, 30 million viewers. The Kentucky Derby gets 15 million. The NFL in a regular season game is getting 30 million viewers. Okay? If all the stories on the NFL were about assault, were about... Uh, concussions or about injuries. I mean, you talk about a sport that is, oh my God, like you talk about horses that unfortunately get injured and, 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 and get put down or mistreated by drugs. I mean, think about what's happening in the NFL, right? Like, and those stories and domestic violence and drugs, like, like that's, that's, if that was 90% of how the sport was covered, do you think the NFL would be where they are right now? Right. So you think it's just you think it's just not proportionate to the overall. That's what you're saying. Proportionate. It's 90-10. <laughs> you know, I mean, listen, negative news has to be told. I'm the first one that wants to talk about negative news. Actually, the real negative news is leadership and racing. Mm. The yeah, real negative news is You're the man who came on NBC. Um, by the way, national NBC and said yes. there there is nothing good about this sport. That is hardly that's hardly cheerleading for the game, is it? No, no, no. But but Nick, I'm also the guy that came on the sport because unlike other people, I take ownership and said, and you know what, Nick? I'm gonna do something. I am the biggest idiot in the game. I spent 16, no, don't say 14 million. You got you misquoted me. 16 million dollars. So I have to be the biggest idiot. You give me any other owner, anybody in any industry that says, you know what? The sport sucks, and I, I'm even dumber than everyone, and I spent $60 million. I'm the guy that says, you know what? I'm done with horse racing. I'm never betting again. I'll see you for the first race tomorrow. All right. And that's so, because I'm passionate. Let me talk about Joe Drake. Joe Drake for a long time. I, been... I want to say one more thing about that. Go on. Nick, as you get older, you know, 14, 24, 34, 44, and 54, there are things that you do your family there are things that you do for financial success or professional success or even personal success i can tell you right now my stable and i have an incredible team and you know that is it is it one of the top stables i'm going to tell you it's one but it's a top five stable you know when i won with uncle mo in 2011 like ah, lucky guy i got news to you 15 years later i got three two-year-old champions okay I don't know if anybody in the history has ever got three, okay? I got Uncle Mo, Forte, Fierceness. You know, it doesn't happen. I don't know if there's a trainer that has – well, Todd Pletcher has three. 
because of Mike Rapoli, but uh, or I have three because of Todd Pletcher, whichever way you want to look at it. Todd will say because of him. I will say because of me. As I said in one of my tweets, he was a mid-level trainer. I met him, and then all of a sudden his his career took off, and everyone like defended Todd. It was so great. I love I love the way everyone was defending Todd. But I'm doing this honestly for the 20, 30 year old people in the sport. Like like I mean, I'm friendly with jo you know John Sakura. He's got three sons in this business. I'm friends with Elliot Walden. He's got, you know, Will Walden in training. I'm I'm friends with Bill Farish. He's got eight children. Eight is enough for Bill. Like, they want to be in the sport. Like, I swear, like, whether Joya wants to be in racing or not, like, I just, it's so sad that being that handicapper at 13 years old and going to the racetrack helped me become an entrepreneur. I'm risking money. I'm analyzing a racing form. I'm looking at business differently. Like, like it can be a fair, like you see why I bring 50 to 75 people. It costs me a million dollars to go to a race. You know, my friend, I, I need to come back as part of my entourage instead of me. But the point is I watch it through their eyes and I watch the excitement. And it's like, it's, it's so special, man. It's this beautiful family event. And I, I, I want it to be here 50 years from now when me and you are not here. I want to be one of the people that said, hey, you know, this guy spoke up. You know, many people thought he was just a loudmouth asshole and he wouldn't go away. The, the one and time, the one time that I've known you just keep it under wraps was in those last few days before the Kentucky Derby last year. And this is this is coming back to the Joe Drape thing, because you say the only time he calls you is when something bad happens. Forte, your horse, who was champion juvenile, is scratched at the 11th hour, as I said, because the vets weren't happy with, with his foot. And you were very quiet. Everyone knew there was an issue up, but you didn't mouth off at that time, and you kept it, kept your counsel. Now, several days later, Forte, um, it, it was reported that Forte had tested positive, having won the hopeful stakes the previous back end as a two-year-old for a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory. And then at that point... Todd Pletcher got a ban. You had your $165,000 taken off you for the purse money. And then there was a big storm. People will say Rapoli's position on that is inconsistent with the position you espoused at the beginning of this interview was that Heisa was fundamentally a good thing for the unity and progress of American horse racing. How do you square those two things? Nick, I mean, when, sometimes people give me really, really, really tough questions. And then people give me like softballs. This is like the easiest answer in the world. The infraction with Forte was would not be a violation or an infraction on the Heiser rules today. It was a minuscule amount that falls below the level of, of that. It wouldn't even have been called. So think about that. I agree with Heisa. Heisa, Lisa Lazarus would say anything on the 0 0.05 is contamination. It's not even called for. He was under that amount. But because there's no education, no leadership, and no explanation in racing and no PR agency, all you need to know is that, hey, Nick, if I told you under Heiser, this is not a violation. Mm. It just shows you that the New York Gaming Commission... Except Heiser, except Heiser do use a PR agency. Yeah, but but they can't. they didn't call this because it happened pre-Heiser. I need you before you air this to call Lisa Lazarus and just ask her a simple question. Hey, I spoke to Mike Rapoli. Under Heiser, the amount of uh, uh, of the drug that was found in the system, it was a, two vets told me, one said it was a P0.05, 
pimple on an elephant's ass. And another vet said it was a grain of sand in the ocean. Why, if, why hasn't someone like explained that to people? So when someone, and you're a journalist, why have instead of you asking me the question, why haven't other people just said under Heiser rules and Heiser is the, the God of horse and safety. This is not a violation. Nick, now that you know it's not a violation on the Heiser at all, what are you thinking about the Forte test now? But but it still comes no, I'm back. Asking, no, 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 Nick. I asked you a question. It, it's not a question about what I think of the of the Forte. No, no, no. I never I expressed it. I just asked you a question. But I, but I, I never expressed I asked you a question, Nick. I, I never expressed a view on, the, on the Forte right. test. So I'm asking you so, to express a view now. So I, I'm, I'm fully cognizant of the fact you can have microscopic amounts in tests that fall below accepted thresholds and that, you know, that will be allowed through. If they are above the, the the accepted threshold for the state at the time when they're tested, then that is a positive test and there is a degree of strict liability, whether you whether you happen to like it or not, or whether there is, you know, we Nick, see Nick, countless Nick, cases around the world. Nick, Nick, Nick you, 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 listen. The level of testing right now, somebody can test what you had for breakfast yesterday right now. Mm -hmm. So when you start testing at that level, you know, if, if you know, it, and it's been out there. Someone at St. Elias, okay, my partner, okay, was having back surgery two days after the hopeful. Two days after the hopeful. He comes the whole week to the, with his grandkids, to, with Forte, pets him in the winner's circle, everything. You don't know what the grooms are on. You don't know what the people are on. When it gets to that level, Nick, I'm going to ask you, do you believe in contamination at low levels? No, I, I believe in contamination at low levels, yet you would also say... So then from now on, then you know what we have to do? From now on, you cannot let anybody in the backstretch. Nobody can touch any horse. When 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 some, when some a fan comes over to me and Todd Fletcher says, can we pet nest over there? What should I say? No. What should I say? Because I'm the idiot that says, yeah, let me bring you over over there. What should I say? So, so how when you, do you when you come over and you do an interview at the barn or somebody else does and you come over and you start petting the horse, what should I say? But how do you square that then with the fact that there are trainers, albeit very few of them, who ever, who scarcely ever record record a positive? They scarcely ever record a positive. And they'll have had people come in, pat their horses. Who? Who? Um, who? Well. No, no. Name somebody. How many, how many? How many? Jug, name them. How many All positives? The has, trainers. Keep going. How many positives has Christoph Clamar had? How many positives yeah. has Graham Motion had? He, they've had him, right? But I mean, we're talking. You asked how many? I can't just see. How many has Todd Pletcher had? I will rank Todd Pletcher as way less than with the number of starts he makes versus these other trainers. Todd Pletcher probably has point zero 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 zero. Asmussen. It's the guys that run twenty five hundred horses. You have to look at that. Oh, you know what? Mike, this guy's perfectly clean. He had nine starts last year. Compare the comparisons. Look at the starts. We, we are somewhat deviating from the central point no, of no, this, wait, of you this gotta, question. you got to name is... one of these incredible top. Like, listen, you have vets. Okay, a guy like Steve Asmussen, don't ask me how he does it. He's got 500 horses in training. He's got them from Indiana to Belterra, you name it. And then there are vets that go in and give this horse that and give the horse. Sometimes there's a two Lasix. They give him a double Lasix or something like that. Or you missed one day out. 
that is not an overage. Hey, Nick, would you say, would you say murder is a crime? Go on. Okay. That means yes, I think. Okay. Yeah. Would you say speeding is a crime? No. Okay. Well, some of these are just little overages, 55 going 60, that the fucking journalists and the industry make it seem like, oh my God, because they're idiots. Let's just be honest. Someone speeding 60 miles an hour doesn't need to make the New York newspaper. That's what these charges are. A level that is below HISA gets a story like it doesn't make any sense. But there's no education in this game, Nick. There's a lot of naiveness. People don't know what a picogram is. Okay? I didn't know either. Like, like who is educated? That's vision, leadership, alignment. So, Nick, if, if you got a ticket going five miles out of the sport and, and NBC Sports took you off or suspended you, you'd be like, what the fuck did I do? I went five miles over the speed limit. You get 14 days. Now, do I believe in fines? Do I believe in penalties? Absolutely. But there's murder in this five... A drug overage is not fucking, you know, you know, cheating is not doping. When Joe Drape, the dope, that's how I, Joe Drape, the dope, called, wrote that article in May. I want you to look at that article in May that Joe Drape wrote. He used the word doping like 15 times in the article. I sent a legal letter to the New York Times and Joe Drape and politely said, you're a dope and you're an idiot. And let me give you the definition of doping versus an overage. And I said, if you guys use that again, I'm going to sue. I now need you to look at the Belmont article by Joe Drape in the New York Times. And tell me how many times the Baffert and Pletcher article had the word doping. I'm going to give you the answer. Zero. So you know what? The industry should have done that. Instead, Mike Rapoli did that. He spent $50,000 on attorneys to right. protect the sport. Okay. Time out on that. I I, I want to stay. I want to stay on this issue a little, but just I, I gotta ask you one thing. Do you think on. overage is doping? Not necessarily. So a little two cc's, a little bit more Lasix is a little bit more butte. That's doping. Not necessarily, and and I accept. No, not at all. And I accept, no, not at all. No, no, I accept the fact. No, not I've at been, all. And I've been saying this. Look up the, the I've been saying this on the daily. I've been saying this on the daily podcast for as long as I can remember. There needs to be a proper global conversation to educate people as to why horses occasionally require medication and at what levels those that medication is acceptable. Otherwise, we're in a situation where people either think you're doping well, you're or you're completely clean. Hmm? You're testing for humans for Motrin before a basketball game. You know, I mean, you know, no, no, it no, might show that's not what I'm saying. I said there needs to be a proper global conversation about why certain medications are required at certain times so people don't believe it's either a question of you being a systemic service Navarro-style doper or you only feed hay, water, and oats. I clearly, there, there is a whole area for discussion here. Navarro service should get the electric ship, okay? That what? is cheating beyond cheating. That is ripping people off like crazy. Now... By the way, you know in the you know that there are bad doctors out there, right? You know there are people that cheat Wall Street. You know right. there are bad who, people in the religion. Who, who set right on on Navarro and service? Who was the person that set the ball rolling to get them indicted? I have no idea. Jockey club. Correct. And who's the chairman of the jockey club? Um, I forgot the guy's name. Stuart Channing. 
Stuart Janney. Stuart Janney. So you, you agree that Service Navarro should have had serious punishments. They should be rooted out of the sport. They have been rooted out of the if sport. The sport was Stuart, being run Stuart, correctly. Stuart, Stuart Janney. Stuart, Stuart Janney. If the sport was being run correctly, Navarro and Service would have never been able to get away right. with the shit. Yeah, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. So it, it was mismanaged for thirty years. You could only, you could only, you could only play the ball that's in front of you. Stuart Janney set an agency on, got Service and Navarro uh, jailed. Well, They're out of the sport, like and you've said, and, and yet you, yet, that he wanted. yet you said, you said, Stuart Janney is part of the problem of this game. He needs to get fired, step down, or retire. How do you, yeah, I, I how don't do you figure that? The I think he, I think he is the problem. How's that Why? Sound? Why? Because he owns, he had 13 starts. What does he know about racing? What is the jockey club positively? Oh, they bought it. Did you see Stuart Janney on 60 Minutes? Tell me if, if, if Roger Goodell went on 60 Minutes and says, our sport is fucked up. Our sport is in big trouble. Our sport this. On a story that was five years ago. What What is the purpose? Have you ever, hey, have you ever interviewed Stuart? No, I got to ask you, Nick. On NBC, have you ever interviewed Stuart Janney? No, but I'm hoping. I'm very much hoping. Wait, wait, why not? Why I'm not? Very much, well, I'm, well, why? He's the commissioner. I'm, 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 I'm why not? Something. Mike, 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 Stuart Janney, Stuart Janney and, and his representative of the Jockey Club are very keen that he should be he should be on this show. So um, well, I'm looking forward well, to interviewing well, him When is he doing month. it next? I'm hoping he's going to do it next month. You know what? I, I look forward to it. I'd like to be on with them. Can you get get us both on? Well, I mean, that's up to that's up to if you want to be on, that's fine by me. Um, but obviously I have to give him the same platform first. So I'd have to interview him for an hour first. And then, yeah. I'd like to see him on this platform. Do you think you're gonna be able what are the chances you think you'll get him on this platform? Uh I'd say my chances are strong. What's strong? Like percentage wise. I'm good with numbers. ninety percent. Ninety percent by what day? Before uh, I'd say I'd say sometime before the end of February. No, let's do an, uh, let's let's do end of January. We got a whole month. Okay, so you, you um, but I, 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 I got one percent. I'm going to make you a bet. This is one percent. You get them on. You said ninety percent. I want to see what happens. We've had some engaging sparring here, and it, I'm sure a lot of it will have entertained people. But there will be people who want to get down into the granular detail of this. Why? Why would you be, or or, or why would you be a better leader for the sport than, for example, Stuart Janney is? Well, first of all, it, it's embarrassing that you use the word leader and Stuart Channing in the same sentence. So but you, you have to stop. You've got to dial down the ad hominem attacks and dial up the detail for me. Well, number one, Stuart Channing hasn't done anything for racing. Okay. He well, we just discussed what he's like, done for racing. What did he do? He, he got to the heart of one of the biggest... A systematic doping. How do you do with the mayor cap? How does that, that work out? The mayor cap. Hmm? You want to talk about that? How did the mayor cap work out? Go on, talk to me. Well, he tried to get a mayor cap instituted that you can a stallion can only breed 140, and he put his you know stake in the ground and and he was threatened by big stallion farms in Kentucky and he rolled over. So what would you have done? What what would you have done? So he had he had what he had he had what you were asking for at the beginning of this interview. He had a clear vision, and he had yeah, a way so, of so, he had so, a way of executing that vision. Yeah. Okay, so, it didn't work. There's a stallion farm that bred a horse this year 293 times. I think that's crazy. I think that's bad for the game. Um, I think 140 was light. Um, I think what I would have done is maybe have the top stallion farms together in one room, which didn't happen. And try to find some happy medium 
where we can work together, communicate. There isn't a platform in this industry where the top leaders meet. The Jockey Club will have this once a year rah-rah, which I'm never asked to. Why would I be asked to? Because, I mean, I'm only a top owner, but that's okay. And nothing ever gets done out of that. So, like, listen, honestly, if you really think the Jockey Club is representing this sport probably over the last 30 years, you get, you know, like, it's it's comical. Like, it's like, we're not represented. We All have right. to do this show. Let, let me ask you this, because we're falling into your own rabbit hole of uh of a lot of negativity here so if you're trying but, to but, reform but but, but, but I, nick i gotta be honest because there is a lot of negativity yeah but, i'm trying to work on the solution so so because you are now having high level meetings with an awful lot of people in the game a lot awful lot of key yes use the horrible word stakeholders you're going around kentucky california florida new york and hopefully all the other places as well Zooms everywhere give me give me some indication of who you've met that you have been impressed by. I'm not saying that they're going to reinvent the wheel or they've got the silver bullet, whatever, whatever metaphor you want to use. Who have you been impressed by, genuinely? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a that's actually a very good question. Thank you. Surprisingly, I've been impressed by about 90% of them. Where I get depressed from impressed is when it comes down to the solution where. A, they're not willing to move their little spoke in the wheel. And number two, that they're not willing to be vocal. If I told you the list of people at the highest level that want to text or call me directly and tell me, I love what you're doing, keep doing it, keep doing it. And then, and then I get like crickets. Like, honestly, I'm disappointed with everybody. Everyone that's had a conversation with me, that everyone identifies the same problem. You know, I'm getting criticism on my style. Um, I'm a results-oriented type of person. I'm not looking for style points. This isn't figure skating, okay? I'm looking for the higher score. I'm looking to win. I'm looking for people to win together. I'm not looking for style points. If you ask me, Going on Twitter, did I think that was going to be my style? I've never done it before. No. Did you think about me being this vocal? No, I would have never thought it. I think that this is the only style that has a chance. Okay. The I know people are hearing me. I know that there's a rallying cry underneath. I know people are supporting me. But here's the thing. It's so funny because I get, even on my traffic on my Twitter, people are very careful to tweet positive. And very careful to like because, hey, I work for Churchill. I can't like it because, but if Mike Rapoli wants to hire someone, I'm here. Hey, I work at the Jockey Club. I'll leave my job tomorrow to work for NTA, but I can't like it or tweet. Or they pass it around in these little groups of like seven people on Texas Change. Like, did you see this? Did you see that? You know, like, I know it's working. I know I'm. I, it's getting back to me. I know the Jockey Club is knows what I'm doing. I know New York Gaming knows what I'm doing. I know Churchill knows what I'm doing. Everybody knows what I'm doing. Okay. Have any, and, of, those, have any of those entities backed you overtly, publicly, or even offered you their, their support? Not, nobody has done that openly. What do you call it? Absolutely not. See, the, see what I want to do is I'm going to build the NTA with Pat Cummings. 
you know, listen, people like, oh, you know, all I've been hearing is a lot of wind. But guys, I've done more probably in two months just by getting the conversation going. Nick, whether you want to agree or disagree, and I, I think you might actually agree. Yeah. There are more people talking since I've gone vocal. Hmm. There's more people talking. Like, 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 you could love me, hate me, who cares? We're talking. We're having the conversation. Whether if it's in a back room, whether it's at a dinner, or whether it's on a call or a text or a tweet, we're talking about it. You know, Boyd Browning put a letter out there. You know, listen, I'm watching some letters to the Blood Horse editor or TDN editor. People are talking. I think, listen, that's the first step in change. But I, but I want to get be, I want to get a little bit beyond the hot air, and I want to go back to something you said earlier on, which is the the immediacy of horse racing, the fact you get a result, the fact that it's simple to understand in many respects. It's the the first normally brown animal to beat the second brown animal past the jam stick. It's the one that wins, and you go to the window. I had the gray. Select. I had the gray horse, though. Yeah, exactly. And it always, always, you always had the gray horse, yeah. and that's and it takes a couple of minutes, and it's perfect in as you say in that bite size uh, chunk for this generation. So why, when you were thirteen, did it have more resonance to your generation than it is having to this generation? How do you how do you rationalize that? And where's the failing in the? Well, I mean, listen. First of all, when you go back forty years, you know. The distractions nowadays, social media, you know, I mean, listen, when you lived in New York, you got news, you know, I used to joke like, you know, six months before I would, you know, like, like now everybody gets news globally in a second, you know, so the big things get out there faster and the little things that people want to talk about can go viral very quickly. So we had a 50 year head start on sports gambling how we screwed this up. Like, it's like, you're the only casino that closes down. Like you can't do this. And, you know, people want to bet people want, I mean, we have the same win, play show, pick five, pick six, like, dude, why not, you know, you know, Forte versus Mage in the Florida Derby. And what are the odds like head to head? Why not over and under wins or, you know, more pools on who's going to win this race or that race. I mean, like we can bring excitement to racing. You know, more. Uh, who's going to win more races in Saratoga? Chad Brown or Todd Pletcher? Chad is plus three wins or whatever it is. Like this, there's innovation in gambling through this thing right here that you can have people gambling 24 hours a day. You know, so where is the, that comes back to vision, Nick. Who is looking, is the jockey club looking at the vision? We are reactive. We're not proactive. And when we're reactive, it's so late. And we don't, like, we don't do anything two, three years from now or five years from now. Like, listen, I'm speaking out, believe it or not. Like, like, I don't need this. Like, I, I, Nick, if I don't own a horse in five years, I wouldn't be surprised. But I would. if horse racing was not around in 10 years, I wouldn't be surprised. You know, horse racing, listen, do I think horse racing is going to go away 100%? No. Can I see in 10 years horse racing in Kentucky only? Yes. Yes. I can see horse racing in Kentucky. Tell California, Mid-Atlantic, Florida. Tell me why. Have you noticed every single track in America closed? Have you seen any new tracks open? 
Have you seen the state of California racing and how many entries? When Bob Baffert has five horses in a stake race out of five horses, you're going to tell me that's good for racing? I'm sending – people don't notice I'm sending horses to California. I'm sending horses to Oakland. I'm sending horses to Brittany Russell in the Mid-Atlantic. I'm sending horses to Fairgrounds. I'm sending horses to Woodbine. You know, I mean, yeah, that's what I'm doing. Hopefully other owners would, not just Naira in Florida. Horses at Tampa. Horses at Gulfstream. You know, so, I mean, Naira? I mean, you're going to race at Aqueduct for three years? I don't know. Good luck. The way the sport's going, I don't know. All right. Five five years' time. Well, you might not still be the chair of your own organization because you've only got a four-year term. Who gets to re-elect you, by the way? Well, listen, I mean, people are very upset. I mean, we put it out there on Twitter, and it was a beautiful vote. I mean, you know, listen, I had. I, I'm just going to say this. I had a much fairer election being commissioner than Stuart Janney did being the jockey club member, being the jockey club, you know, CEO. So, you know, that's it. Listen, at the end of the day, Nick, I want to let you know, the jockey club needs to be knocked down and either rebuilt or disappear. Okay? And we do need a governing body in racing. And we need somebody side by side with Heisen. Either somebody with the NTA being a consultant and part of an advisory. I mean, I know how to build brands. You just said it at the beginning. Okay. You know, I'm, I'm reading tweets that Danielle sends me. Mike Rapoli is now my favorite follow on horse racing Twitter. Like those are the things that honestly, I'm, I'm actually surprised. I, I'm being honest with you. Like the dislike you would, it's Twitter. People are going like, to dislike it, but th that people are actually engaging. And when you see the numbers, it tells you, whether you like me or hate me or disagree or agree, like right now, we agreed on 75%. But the part that we disagreed on was as entertaining as the 75% we agreed on. And that's okay. I leave here liking you just as much as I've liked you the last 10 years. You're going to leave here liking me just as much. You know, we don't, I mean, we're not fucking afraid to argue or disagree with each other. And we'll get off and fucking text and say that was fun. And I'll do that with you every week, I don't mind. And we can have a difference of opinions. Do you believe, obviously you have a little bit more faith in the jockey club than I do, which is great, but do you believe that the United States, we need a governing body in horse racing? Yeah, yes or no? Without a shadow of a doubt. I mean, yeah. I, I, I think you'll find, we agree? Very, you will find very few people who disagree okay. with the contention that you need uh, a, a commissioning, a proper commissioning body. Uh, that, okay. No, I'm going to ask you this. So far, yeah, we agree. With you're, you, you're the okay. execution is the thing. And if you, if you, I got to ask you one more you, thing. Hang on. Let, let me ask the no, no, no. I got to ask you one more thing. Questions here. I'm asking the questions. You're the interesting one. I'm just the. I'm just the guy asking. No, the no. I, so, I, I, I can make you interesting. You could. You could. No. <laughs> you could go around. You could go around like so. You you talk to enough sensible people in New York. Enough sensible people in New York, enough sensible, some sensible people in California, Florida, whatever. And could you find representatives of each of those bodies who would basically say to you? Um, Mike, yes, I'm prepared to uh, give away my twenty percent. Uh, join uh, join a a board uh, that would that would feed into a commissioner's office. Yeah, clearly there's going to be squabbling and infighting. You're going to get that if you're going to try and get all these tracks together. But at least that they they agree to cooperate on fixtures, race times, um, issues of governance. Yeah, as you say, you've got the regulatory. 
uh, uniformity getting there now with Heiser. It should Have, be easier, yes. Are people saying to you, yeah, in Kentucky at Churchill Downs, yeah, I'll, I'll run by the same by the same uh, governance as as Naira and 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 first racing or whatever. Yeah. So it's a great question. Um, when I first hit these people on this about sixty days to ninety days ago, it was. It was like even people that I got along with, like it was this. It was like, no, no, there's a lot bigger problems. No, no, this is what you want to solve. This, And it was all that. And listen, because I've been consistent about everybody and their 20%, I've been saying, be more selfless than selfish. If you told me, Mike, let's take 10% of the purses, which includes your purses, and you've run out 9 million this year, and you have to put it back into the sport in some sort of revenue generate and revenue sharing to help younger owners and smaller owners and younger trainers and uh and newer trainers and younger jockeys and newer jockeys I'm all for that I will give 10% to help other people I want to grow the pie from the handle to the um, the the full crop has gone from 32,000 to 18,000 I want it to be 42,000 I want to grow the handle to $50 billion, not $10 billion. So it's all about me. I'll give away 10% of my winnings. Like, like, listen, make it an $80,000 purse, but 10,000 goes to whether you want to do it by start. Like you put, you pass the hat around and you help little owners. You help little trainers. You help gamblers. You help little tracks. Instead, Churchill wants to take from Naira and Naira wants to take from Churchill. And Coolmore wants to take from Spinthrift. And Spinthrift wants to take from Coolmore. Like, it's one thing when you compete inside. I want to beat Godolphin. I want to beat Judgemont. I want to beat Clavish. I want to beat those guys every day. But when we're outside, maybe we should talk about how to make it better. You know? You know, and when I you, tried to have but conversations. But when, yeah. when, when, you were, when you were making your way to your first billion, did you care about what your competitor was doing? Or were you just trying to trample all over him? Yeah, that's that's a that's another good question. So you, you you're, you're on a roll now. I'm I'm really enjoying this. <laughs> There's a difference competing inside the fucking racetrack and unifying outside. The NFL owners want to beat the shit out of each other, but when they have those owner meetings with Roger Goodell and they're working on media and they're working on PR and they're working on that TV contract and they're working on the Super Bowl and the playoffs and the number of teams and who's going to work. They all shake hands, and that's why their teams have gone from being worth $100 million to $8 billion. Racing stables like Rapoli Stables should be valued at a billion dollars one day. Churchill Downs should be worth $30 billion one day. Naira should go private one day at $10 billion. A Tampa Bay racetrack, Stella, should have a track that's worth more than the real estate. Stronic should be worth $5 billion. How can you screw this up? We are. So competition within externally alignment you don't have by the way you don't even when i'm aligned doesn't mean you have to like me and i don't have to like you either but there, it's okay to say you know hey i don't like that person but i agree with him like we live in a world where whether you like if you don't like somebody even if you agree with them you either a you don't voice it or you go the opposite way like i'm like like you know i might say it this way that idiot has a good idea there i might say it with my style that way but but at the end of the day I mean, listen, I had a conversation 40, for 45 minutes two weeks ago with Bob Baffert and Jill Baffert. It was an unbelievable 
conversation. Okay? I want to beat the shit out of Bob Baffert when Fiestas beats Muth and Vito Rosa beats McKenzie on his home turf. I have the biggest smile. It's like winning a road game. You know, like, you know, you went to you went to my high stadium and and you and the Raiders beat the Broncos. Like that's that's exciting. That's a road game. And he wants to beat me too. But you know, listen, you know, I don't use him as a trainer. I use him as Todd and I are partners. And he's got his team. But there's respect outside. You know, and by the way, I don't have to agree with everything Bob says. And I don't have to give him horses. But we had a great conversation. You know, and listen, do I think he is perfect? No. Do I think anybody in this world is perfect? No. Do I think he was a face for this game for 15, 20 years? And that, you know, should he be running in Churchill Downs? I think it's it's a it's a crime that he's not running in Churchill. He got a penalty, and maybe he deserved it. But the penalty's up. What's the penalty now? We don't like you. Get out. And for his owners, by the way, I told this, and this is his owners. And I'm going to say it right now to them. If Todd Pletcher had a suspension, and then it got off, and he was not allowed to run at the Kentucky Derby, and I had fierceness, if you think I'm going to on in March, send it to another trainer so he can race in the Kentucky Derby when Todd helped, you know, helped create that family that I have out of that Nonamia family. And Todd is my trainer day one. I'm going to ditch my trainer. And those owners, and I, I like a lot of them, that leave Bob Baffert in March to go get a shot at the Derby, that's bullshit. That's total bullshit. And I told Jill and Bob, I wouldn't be doing that to you. Final question, Mike Rapoli. Five years' time, what deems this project a success? Mike Rapoli. I'm not going away. I don't lose. I'm not going away. There's going to be change. They can embrace it or I'm going to force it. I'm going to force change. And I'm going to be an asshole all the way until it's done. And then uh, people will realize that it took one person who didn't care what people thought, that was a powerful enough voice, and you know what? This isn't about money. I mean, this is this is not. This is about... You know, when I have 21-year-old kids, you know, that go to University of Kentucky, come up and want to talk to me or, you know, want to want to want to talk about one of the horses or want to, you know, get a picture with Todd Pletcher or, or want to talk to Irad Ortiz or, you know, little kids that come into the winner's circle like Dean Wayne Lucas will bring in. You know, I'm doing this for the 13-year-old Mike Rapoli 40 years ago. I'm, I'm, I'm doing it, the, the joy that I have First, my grandmother, who passed away three years ago, you know, having her at the races to now, you know, Joya just like it's it's made her grow up. Like she just it's part of like, you know, yes, Joya, what's your favorite place on the racetrack? She said she says the winner's circle like like that's that's attitude like like it's part of it's part of it's part of her life and it's part of my life. And it, it really has brought my family closer together. These special races are like holidays, you know, you know, my, my family's spoiled. They book, they, you know, I tell them Christmas comes every year. Mike Rapoli doesn't have to have a horse in the Derby every year, but they book the first Saturday in May, like, you know, immediately. Um, it'd be a shame if that family aspect went away. I wish we could unite a little bit more outside wanting to kick someone's ass at the racetrack inside the racetrack on a competitive edge. You ever see like, 
after a football game, 38-35, what do they do? They meet at midfield, and they exchange jerseys, and they shake hands, and they give each other hugs, and they wish them good luck. After a big hockey series, seven games, you're fought with seven of them, they line up, and they shake hands. This industry doesn't do that. This industry doesn't do that. It's a shame. And you know what? It's why we're at, we're, why where we're at. You know, we, we, we don't want to unite. You know, let's give up 10% to double the pie. And if we're too selfish, I, I said selfless over selfish. And, you know, listen, come on. I've been so blessed with the horses that I've had. You know, I, you know, fierceness. I mean, I got, I won two Eclipse Awards last year and I won, I'm going to win two more Eclipse Awards this year. You know, I mean, Come on. I think I have six now for a lifetime. I mean, a 13-year-old kid that was betting $2 at Aqueduct Racetrack who's competing versus the ruler of a country and a prince probably shouldn't compete at that level. You know, I mean, you know, so, you know, I'm blessed. And I know it. And I am passionate. I love it. And where else can, uh, you know, Sheik Mo, Mike from Queens, and Prince whatever compete on the same opportunity, you know? It's fun. Mike Rapoli, thank you very much. Appreciate it, Nick. Thanks.